I had a lady message me from Tanzania saying, please help me. I'm 34. The doctors took out my ovaries. I don't know what to do. And that Mm. fuels me. It fuels my soul. I really, really love being able to educate people. I educate lay women. I educate students. I educate patients. I educate other doctors. And that feeds my soul. Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Heather Hirsch, who is board certified in internal medicine and has completed an advanced fellowship training in women's health at the Cleveland Clinic. Now, Dr. Hirsch and I have a very interesting discussion, all centered around perimenopause and menopause, a stage in a woman's life that holds so much stigma and discrimination, quite frankly. And she has made her whole practice focused on really relieving menopause symptoms, hormone therapy, sexual health, breast and bone health, all the things that we need to be thinking about as we are approaching that period of our lives. I am so thrilled to both welcome Dr. Hirsch on the show and also to the Body Agency's advisory board. Dr. Heather Hirsch is in the house. Hello, my sister. How are you? Hello. I'm wonderful. Well, you're looking wonderful there and very professional with your podcast setup. I know that you also have a podcast and we'll give it a shout out, Health by Heather Hirsch. Fully, fully recommend it. It's a great podcast. Now, Heather, let's start off by talking about your personal journey here because you are a hero amongst all menopausal women. But I also know that you are an internist as well as an OBGYN. What got you to land on menopause? So I started my career always wanting to take care of women. And back in college, I double majored in women's studies and biology. So when I went to medical school, I thought, well, the the only way to take care of women is to become an OBGYN. So I did just that. I did a year and a half of OBGYN. And after that, I realized I was not the best surgeon and I wasn't really built to be a surgeon. I wanted to sit and talk. And Mm. I really love the consulting nature of talking to women about making choices with their body. And so I switched career paths and I went into internal medicine residency. And so I'm now board certified in internal medicine. And while I was doing my internal medicine residency, I thought, aha, I'm going to become an oncologist. I'm going to do breast cancer. That makes sense. I've always wanted to take care of women. So Mm -hmm. I did a rotation in the breast cancer clinic and the oncologist would come with me into the room. And after she would leave and talk about all their protocols and percentages of this and that, I would always ask them, how are you feeling? How is your sex life? How are you sleeping? And I realized I was so so much more interested in like their whole aspect of their lives. So when it went, became time to do fellowship training, I decided against being an oncologist. Instead, I went to the Cleveland Clinic and I did advanced fellowship training in women's health. And I was very interested in all the things that, you know, I think a lot of young internists are interested in reproductive rights, contraception, but probably not more than a few weeks into my fellowship training in 2014, I realized, holy heck, women were flying from across the country to go to Cleveland, which we dubbed the mistake on the lake, right? It's not the most desirable vacation place to figure out what was wrong with them. Like, 
why they didn't feel good, why they weren't sleeping, why they were miserable, why they didn't want to have sex anymore. Could they take hormone therapy? Their doctor was against hormone therapy. And I had this aha moment of like, oh my gosh, we are leaving women completely behind after they have children if they even choose to. And I knew at that very moment that I wanted to do midlife and menopausal women's health care because I was astonished that what I learned about menopause and hormone therapy was actually completely different than what I was taught in my medical school and my seemingly top-notch residency training. So that's how I became interested in menopausal care. Well, let's get down to basics for a second. Let's take a step back just on some rapid questions so our listeners really understand the basics of menopause here. Give us the age range, first of all. Obviously, I know the answers to these questions, but I want to make sure our audience really gets it. How old are you when you really have to start thinking about going into perimenopause? So I'll tell you the average ages. The average age of perimenopause in the United States is 47. The average age of menopause in the United States is 51 and a half. Although I have patients as young as 17 in menopause and patients as old as 58 who are not yet into menopause. So there's actually a pretty wide range as well as I think that perimenopause in particular is probably underreported. I just don't see doctors writing to the CDC, oh, my patient's experiencing perimenopause and I've diagnosed her with that at 44. So I think that perimenopause probably starts around age 45 or younger. Mm -hmm. Now, one fact to get clear out there is often when you go through cancer, certainly uterine or or cervical cancer, you're going to go into early menopause. Is that right? So early menopause can happen, you're right, for a couple of reasons, whether it's chemotherapy-induced or radiation, certain medications like one big culprit is Lupron that will chemically put you into menopause. And of course, any type of surgical menopause where both ovaries are removed, and there's lots of different reasons for that. One of the more common things we see now is women getting both of their ovaries removed for high-risk mutations, like Angelina Jolie. She had her Mm -hmm. ovaries removed because of a BRCA mutation. So those are all Mm -hmm. the reasons you can be put into early menopause. Mm -hmm. So you are currently in the process of writing a book. We're very excited. Uh, We understand it's coming out in 23 and it's called Unlocking Your Menopause Type. So let's talk about that for a second. Menopause type. Isn't there just one type of menopause person? Tell us about all the different types that we have to look forward to. I will. So I came up with this concept while I was uh, flying somewhere. And one time I heard that when you're in the air, maybe because of atmospheric pressure, you're like the smartest and it could totally be placebo effect. But I think I come up with all my good ideas while I'm flying. Mm-hmm. And Me too. actually, originally, I wanted to write a book, Why Does No One Care About Menopause? And I pitched that book and no one thought it was really that great of an idea, although still valid. And actually, I think people have and are writing good books on that topic. But I really reflected on my experience of consulting and seeing women for menopause since 2014. And I really realized there was sort of six different main phenotypes and that actually they were really quite different. And that if you, you know, kind of had a clue that you were maybe one of these different phenotypes, that you could actually better understand how you could work through the symptoms of menopause or how best to treat it. So let's talk about then 
obviously, you know, every woman is different and we all have different experiences with our hormones, with our libido, with the symptoms that we get during menopause and perimenopause. Let's just get basic for a second. What are the main symptoms? Like when you go into perimenopause, what sort of things are you going to experience that is different than menopause? So great question. The first thing a lot of women notice is some kind of change in periods. It could be they're shorter. It could be they're longer. It could be they're heavier. It could be all of a sudden they're filled with clots. It could also Mm -hmm. be, is there some preceding symptom that's new? So a lot of women will say, I never had a migraine before ever, or I never had PMS. I say that with air quotes because PMS Mm -hmm. is a physiologic process. It's really not a social construct. It's really something that happens to us when our hormones change before we have our periods. It could be I'm all of a sudden getting like tingling legs or insomnia, or I'm sweating through my sheets before my period. So sometimes there's a change in period and sometimes it's noticing oftentimes some kind of cyclic pattern of strange and bizarre and mysterious things that are happening to you. Now, it could mm-hmm. be the classic night sweats, hot flashes. And a lot of people actually will think their first hot flashes that they're getting sick. They will take their temperature. They're convinced they have cold or some sort of cyclic type of viral infection. Mm-hmm. I see that a lot. And another big symptom besides for change in periods and then sort of any type of cyclic syndrome is a change in mood. And this is becoming more and more talked about and researched. And one of the things that I think is actually quite interesting is that in perimenopause, your hormones are a little bit more volatile. So you're still making estrogen, uh, you're still making testosterone. They're just more volatile than they used to be when you were premenopausal. But we think that progesterone kind of dips out early. (laughs) Progesterone like gets the message before everyone else. And actually progesterone tends to be the... For most people, it's hard to make generalizations, but kind of like the relaxing hormone. And so we think that perhaps because progesterone is decreasing early, that's one reason that anxiety uh, really tends to spike in perimenopause, that like get in bed, can't turn your brain off type of anxiety. Well, also there's a head fog where you can't focus. And what about breast swelling? Is that a perimenopause symptom? Like your breasts are tender or you're bloating. You feel like you've got a period coming on and then it never comes on. Oh yeah, the phantom period, right? Yeah. Yes, totally (laughs) common. And again, I think what's happening is instead of this like nice up and down that hormones used to do when you were premenopausal, they're so much more volatile. And that Mm. volatility can actually really cause like this onslaught of like, harsher or more severe or more intense symptoms than perhaps you used to have. So women would tell me I've never really had breast tenderness before. All of a sudden I feel like, ah, don't touch me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's our good friend, perimenopause. Now, one of the big myths that's out there, and I don't even think it's a myth. I think women generally struggle with this when they're going through perimenopause and menopause is the loss of libido. First of all, how can hormones help us with that? Secondly, do hormones help with that? And should you charge through and really try to force yourself to have sex? And is is that going to help you to get your libido back? Like, what, what do we do here? Because, listen, I know stimulated in the right way, we should never lose our libido. So what are some of your suggestions here? Let's start with the hormones. 
Well, you know what? Let's take a step back, Kate. What I usually ask first, I guess this is hormone related. What I usually ask my patients first is, is it painful or is it pleasurable? Because mm-hmm. let's start with if it's painful. If it's painful and or if it's unpleasurable, I can, you know, say we want to boost hormones by using testosterone or something that can help libido. But if it's painful, that's the rate limiting step. So we have to address if there's pain first. And if there is mm-hmm. pain, it's commonly, you know, a low estrogen, which is going to cause genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And so vaginal estrogen is going to be extraordinarily helpful for that. Vaginal estrogen being a suppository that you put up there and it gets the juices flowing. You bet. Yes. So vaginal estrogens, and we should clarify this before I just go 90 miles a minute, that vaginal estrogen is prescription. Mm-hmm. Vaginal estrogen does not travel systemically. And so it's very different than systemic or whole body type of hormone therapy. The safety of vaginal estrogen has been you know, proven a thousand times over. So vaginal estrogen, either in a cream or a suppository, is definitely the first place to start for libido almost always when there's pain. Okay, let's just get onto estrogen because we haven't finished all my questions yet from that, but I just want some clarifying questions here. So estrogen, you can get in a pill form that you take every day. You can get it through a patch that you stick on your arm or somewhere on your body. And then you can also do it vaginally. Are you supposed to be doing all three or do you choose one or can you combine vaginal with the whole body pill that you take like a contraceptive? Like how does that work? Yes, exactly. These are all the right questions and all the things that my patients always ask me. So we know that for about 40% of women who are taking systemic, what we'll kind of think of as whole body hormone therapy, whether, whether it's either oral or a patch or a gel, still have genitourinary symptoms of menopause. And so for about 40% of women who take systemic or whole body estrogen, they also use vaginal estrogen. And so you might be like, but why? And it's because the Mm. vagina just needs the most TLC. It has the most Mm. estrogen receptors. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes women will need that extra dosage in the vagina. Alternatively, about 60% of women who are on systemic hormone therapy, therefore don't also need or use vaginal estrogens, but some of them do and some of them don't. It's pretty much actually close to 50-50. And then some women choose to simply just use just the vaginal kind, which we call local or topical vaginal estrogen, just for the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which doesn't help you know, hot flashes or bone health or any of those systemic things because it's just for the vagina. So there's systemic hormone therapy, which is typically an estrogen, which is either in a pill or in a patch, plus a progesterone if you have your uterus, and or or solely vaginal estrogen, which is considered local or topical estrogen, which you don't need a progesterone for because it doesn't travel systemically. And that's if you're using that simply for just GSM. Did that cover it? It did, but I have so many more questions regarding therapy, as in hormones, but we'll get back to that in a minute because I want to stay on my last question of having sex. Is continuing to have a active sex life when you're going through peri and and full-blown menopause helpful? We do know that often the symptoms are also causes dryness down there, so obviously a really good lube 
everyone needs a really good lube, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's helpful. So you treat the symptoms with the estrogen and then it's about lube. And is it helpful to continue having sex? Am I on the right train here? So sometimes, often yes, but we have to make sure, again, if it's not painful, that it's also pleasurable and that you have a good relationship with that person, et cetera, because a lot of times there can be traumas, previous traumas, reproductive traumas, um, relationship traumas, PTSD that often rears its ugly head in women's, you know, perimenopause and menopause transition. I don't Mm. know why. I think it's maybe because it's the first time women get the chance to like slow down. Yeah. And sometimes these things rear its ugly head. And if, if women have had those in their history, it can make this idea of like, just push through seem very disconnected with some of the issues they still need to work through. Now, for some women in trusting relationships where they don't have pain, it can be helpful because we do form these neuronal connections that the more we do something, um, the more we kind of think about it, the more it's on our radar, and particularly if it's pleasurable. So it's also about education. What's going to make this pleasurable for a woman? Because If a woman has symptoms, she's not sleeping, she doesn't feel great, it's not pleasurable, and maybe there's any kind of old trauma resurfacing, she can have all the sex that she wants, but it may never be something that she's going to actively seek out. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. women come in all different shapes, sizes, varieties. So I have Mm -hmm. few, I wouldn't say the majority, who feel like their libido is higher in perimenopause. Maybe it's because kids have left the house. Maybe they feel like they don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. Um, Maybe they feel completely liberated. And so I have Mm -hmm. some women for whom they say they are rocking and rolling. Mm. Well, obviously, what is needed here is also a very understanding partner. And I I, I think that's so interesting what you bring up with trauma from a past life. Suddenly, you have time to really think about that. And it comes out at this stage of your life. Very, very interesting. What about men? Do you ever interact with the other half, with your clients, your people that you treat in your clinic? Do the husbands ever come in or the partners ever come in? And what do men need to know about their partner going through menopause? Such a good question. You see, you know, pre-pandemic, I would often have couples come together to see me. And I loved this. It's such a thing that actually, if you're coupled, whether it's a female or a male, particularly if it's a male, if it's a female who hasn't gone through menopause, kind of also potentially the same thing, but it's really something you go through together. Really, really, you really do. And then there's nothing like it and there's nothing that prepares you for it. We don't even educate women about it. So there's just nothing like it. But I loved when couples would come together. You know, I would say to her, okay, are you having any hot flashes? Oh yeah, yeah. Are you sleeping okay? She's like, okay. The partner's like, no, no. Yeah. It's so interesting yeah. what they're what they're kind of also seeing and weighing in on. And, you know, I stopped seeing men many years ago. And in in many ways, women are much more complex and curious creatures than men. But men, at least the ones that self-select to come to this visit with their partner, will sit mm. there and just kind of nod the whole time. And I'll say, you know, does this make sense? And they're like, yeah. It does. I actually think, really, it doesn't take them that much to put the pieces together. They're like, oh, hormone drops. You don't feel good. Let's replace it. They're they're very, 
you know, basics, right? Women want to know, well, will my hair fall out? Will my teeth change color? Is this going to cause me to gain weight? Like multiple questions. But actually men, at least again, the ones that come to see me with their partners, find this process really, really helpful. And they kind of follow along and then they'll come back with their partner and say, oh yeah, she's sleeping much better. (laughs) <laughs> and they'll give me yeah. a big hug and they're like, she's back. Thank you so much. I think that the same type of information women need, men need. But interestingly, I think they actually can kind of make sense of it very quickly. The ones that come with their wives or, or their partners, of course, are super supportive. That's why they self-select to actually come to this visit. And you know, now that I've been doing telemedicine, sometimes they listen in. But again, post-pandemic, which has been the last like two years now, however long it's been, you know, you can't have more than one person in the visit and and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know how much pandemics affected how much partners are coming with their wives or girlfriends. So on that note, we have a lot of symptoms, right? So we basically have to treat the symptoms. The biggies are night sweats, sleep, anxiety, probably coming from not enough sleep, your hormones. (laughs) And it's not very sexy lying next to somebody who's sweating through the night or is irritable because they haven't had enough sleep. So it's all about treating those symptoms, right? You got your hormones sorted out, you're taking your estrogen, you got your vag suppositories for, you know, to get, you've got a great lube. We actually, at at the body agency, we developed a kit called the Happy Hormones Kit that actually looks at all those things. So you treat the symptoms, because if you treat the symptoms, you will sail through menopause and everyone will be happy. As well as estrogen, right? Because these are the things that, as you say, Heather, are prescription only, right? You've got to go to your gynecologist or your menopause specialist like you to get these things prescribed. Apart from estrogen, what other medications fall under this hormone treatment therapy? Testosterone is one. How do you know when you have to take testosterone? Like, how do you know? Like, why do some gynecologists say, okay, all you need is estrogen, you don't need testosterone? How do you know that you need testosterone? Yeah, you know, there is, I kind of laugh at that because it is kind of a toss up because there are no great protocols, unlike like diabetes okay, we know the first line is this and the second line is this. And if you need to also lose weight, we're going to use this. But when it comes to menopausal care, for whatever reason, lack of research, terrible education, there is no standard protocol. And when it comes to just testosterone, testosterone is really even further a stretch because there's just no good research, no long-term research on testosterone. So until the NIH says, oh, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I'd love to give you $50 million to study the effects of testosterone in postmenopausal women, which just sounds like laughable to even say out loud, we really don't know a ton about testosterone. So actually what I do is use my experience of treating women over many years that to kind of help guide me on who needs testosterone. And I have a couple principles on this if you want to hear how I decide who needs testosterone. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, if you're a young patient, if you're under age 45 at the time of menopause, because you're going to lose testosterone at menopause, it is definitely on the menu. But for almost all my patients, I typically start, if they're thinking about hormone therapy, I typically start with estrogen replacement and a progesterone if you have a uterus first. 
that's because there's a good chance that if you just take estrogen and or your progesterone, you might come back to me and say, I feel like a brand new person. I feel really, really good. I feel satisfied. I feel happy. I have libido. Bam. Sometimes because libido is so complex, just like sleeping and not sweating, like you said, Mm -hmm. and feeling good about yourself and feeling like yourself again is all that that patient needs. But then I have some patients for whom they come back and say, I feel great. I'm not sweating anymore. I'm thinking clearly. My heart palpitations have disappeared, whatever that main symptom was. But she'll say, my libido is non-existent. And all they will all say the same thing to me. I feel dead inside. I look at my partner and I feel dead inside. I don't know. It, it all comes like that just must be what, what it feels like. So then I say, okay, I think it's time for us to consider testosterone. Now, there's two other non-hormonal options that I talk to my patients about. One is called Addy or Flibanserine. One is called Phylicia or Bromanolanotide. But a lot of them do choose testosterone. Then we do a trial of testosterone. We do have the most data, although it's not great and it's not a lot, but we have the most data that testosterone is helpful for libido and postmenopausal women. And then again, if I go back to my younger patients, they may come back to me and say, okay, I feel pretty good. My libido is okay. Da, 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 da. I will still say, do you want to do a trial of testosterone? And I'll say, oh, why? And I'll say, well, We've lost that hormone for you as well. And we just don't know its effects truly on cognition or memory tasks or metabolism or muscle mass. And clearly, I am not going to overdose my patients. That happens a lot for women who get pellet injections. We can talk about that in a second because that's why a lot of people get pellet injections is to get testosterone. Um, But for my younger patients who are under age 45, I often will say, let's do a trial of this. And they'll come back and see me and say, yeah, that was just like the missing piece. <laughs> or they'll say, mm-hmm. meh, didn't really notice the difference. And so then I'll stop. So are, are you basically saying that testosterone treats the libido, not estrogen? Well, so sometimes estrogen does, but potentially it's either indirectly or it does sort of prime the brain because some of my patients will take their estrogen and come back and they feel great. But some of my patients still notice with just estrogen, they need something more. And oftentimes then testosterone can help. Awesome. Okay. I get it. And I learned the other day from one of our podcast doctors that men go through the menopause as well because of testosterone, right? They start to lose it and also go through something similar. Maybe, but I don't see men. So I honestly don't know. Well, you should listen to her podcast, Kelly Kasperson hilarious. She basically said if men's balls fell off at time of the menopause, that there would be a national vaccine, international vaccine to treat it. Oh yeah. I pulled people on TikTok. I said, what would men do if they went through menopause? And and everyone was like, oh my gosh, this would be solved already. Three times the yeah. military budget. There would be a free Tough pill life. for everyone. And it's true that there is definitely, you know, a misbalance between men's sexual health and women's sexual health. Um, and the problem mm. is, is that when doctors don't know how to treat this or don't even address it, women will seek out help in unsafe yeah. places. For example, yeah. again, a lot of women taking, you know, testosterone pellets um, that's become very mm. popular. And that's a way to seemingly help this problem of low libido. I wouldn't even say it's a problem, but there you have it. Well, you and I, Heather, are working on this 
movement, this notion that we are not up at midlife. Well, sell-by date has not expired. And, you know, there is such a massive need for doctors like you who really specialize in this area. And, you know, I think you and I have talked about this. I've worked in, in global health where women are concerned, female health for the last over two decades. And menopause was just never brought up ever. And I think it's because they, they are the end of our reproductive years, right? We cannot make babies anymore after we go through menopause. Although there have been some cases where a woman's been in menopause for, for the last three years and suddenly she finds out she's pregnant. I have heard, not often, but I know that that's the case. What do you think has happened? Like, why, why is this such a need? Because, you know, I know the menopause market is like, ridiculous that the need, the unmet need that is in the menopause market is billions and billions of dollars of opportunity. Why are we still in the dark ages where there's such a stigma attached to going through menopause? I mean, it's, we feel ashamed of it. Why is that? And what do we still need to do? Women's health after childbearing, if women even choose to have children, is invisible. It's been made invisible. And it's really been turned into men's health, but just having boobs and maybe a uterus. But women's health after childbearing years doesn't exist until more recently when women are realizing that menopause is not just this siloed event. It's not just hot flashes. It's mm. so much more than that. It mm -hmm. is years and years and years of symptoms and being able to put together weird symptoms with actually a word, perimenopause, menopause, yeah. and then to mm. know there's treatment, and then to think how menopause interacts with chronic conditions and chronic health, especially women, when you talk about a prior history of trauma, reproductive trauma, mm. when you talk about mm. women and high blood pressure and diabetes, it all also correlates directly with the loss of estrogen. So I think that there is an army of women starting to mobilize who are saying, oh, no, 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 no. The same group of maybe it's millennials, they got so much more information about birth control and got so much mm -hmm. more information about postpartum care are not taking mm -hmm. perimenopause and menopause like laying down. They're not just like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm just not going to. Everyone's just like, this is a really important thing. It's not just this siloed event. So now you've got this army of women that's kind of starting to mobilize. We're seeing it in the UK. We're seeing a little bit here mm -hmm. in America. We're yep. seeing some great doctors in Australia and Canada who are working on menopause. And, and globally, you've got the International Menopause Society, the British Menopause Society, NAMS. And all these people are kind of coming together. Then you have folks who come from the marketing and media world saying, wow, there's this big, like, there's this big area here. There's this big gap in care. And there's, you know, some crazy like 600 million menopausal women across the globe, right? We know there's like 10 million women in the UK menopausal and 60 million women in the United States alone that are going through the perimenopause. So there's like, ah, there's so much opportunity here. That's why there's a lot of femtech. That's why I think more people are starting to think about it. What I think is really happening is that women's health has been made invisible after children for our entire lives, really up until the last few years. And the army yep. of women, whether it's social yep. media and a little bit more education, they're before the doctors, they're ahead of the doctors. 
Because then what we have is a huge education gap and doctors know nothing about menopause and sexual health. So it's a lot of like backstepping. And I'm lucky, I'm lucky that when I was in my internal medicine residency, I decided to go to Cleveland Clinic instead of becoming an oncologist. I'm lucky that I've had the mentors that I've had. You know, Dr. Holly Mm. Thacker, who taught me everything I know at the Cleveland Clinic, and then lots of folks at NAMS, and just so many mentors I've had have given me this lens that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. Well, you know, what I've seen around the world, as I mentioned over the last two decades of doing this work, is, you know, you talk about England and the U.S. and maybe some parts of Europe where we freely now talk about this, but you go to Africa, you go to India, you go to any of these developing countries, and I can assure you, it's only discussed in whispers in your local community, maybe amongst, you know, grandmas. So the resources are not there. And we are going to change that, Heather. We are so thrilled that you're doing this work, that you have this focus, that you've joined our body board at the Body Agency, and that we can offer. You also are a consultant. You can do sessions. We're so excited about welcoming you into the Body Agency family. And this is so needed. And we need to get this out across the world in multiple languages so that that women can get, and, and men can get the resources that they need to be able to sail through this. I actually have a couple of rapid fire questions for you that I would really love to sort of end on. Why do some women have no symptoms going through menopause? Yeah, about 10% of women have what I call, and what's in my book, called the silent type. They don't really feel any symptoms. And we're not exactly sure why, but it may have to do with the fact that their genetics, I think it's a lot of Mm. genetics, actually Mm -hmm. not so much luck and not so much lifestyle, but really more genetics, that their Mm -hmm. little receptors for estrogen kind of down-regulate or go to sleep so that they never have this sort of angry brain saying, where's the estrogen? They just don't have it. But interesting about the silent type is that their body will still change. Their body will still change. Mm. They just don't feel it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, I feel like depression, you say angry. I feel like depression and menopause also comes into play. We've talked about trauma, but, you know, you're going through these changes and suddenly you can't make babies anymore and, and you can't help but think to yourself, oh, well, is that it now? Am I done as a woman? Just like when you get your period, you're like, I'm a woman now. You know, it's like, you know, I think depression is very common. Your thoughts on that? Exactly. So in my book, one of the types is the mood and mind type. And Mm -hmm. so many women are amazed to learn that their predominant symptom could be depression, anxiety, OCD, or obstructive and compulsive thoughts, worsening ADHD or trouble paying attention or finishing tasks. It's such a big issue that it's an entire type of menopause in my book. And I think that just knowing that, I think for women who may have friends or colleagues or sisters going through menopause might look at this a little differently. It's not just garden variety, low mood. It can be very, very severe. We know suicide rates actually increase. We know divorce rates Mm -hmm. increase right at the same time as perimenopause and menopause right at the same time as chronic diseases. And I think it's such a huge symptom and it can stand all on its own. I have women tell me I didn't even have one hot flash. It was just this 
this harsh onset of major depressive disorder. So I couldn't agree with you more. It's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, let's just have a little fun as we wind up our podcast. Now, as you know, the podcast is called Sex, Body, and Soul. And we need to get to know you. You're you're on our body board now. You're part of the family. Now, a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. Think about sex, right? You personally. What is the one of the things that you might do to sort of get yourself in the mood? Hmm. You know, that's a great question. I have been with my husband, my partner for eight years. So maybe we're still honeymooners, right? I don't know. After eight years? (laughs) They say the seven-year itch, right? So you pass that. But he is so sexy. And our alone time is like very limited. And honestly, sometimes what really will just like kind of turn me on is I'm just, I'll just be, we'll just be doing our everyday things. Not all the time, but you know, sometimes he's just like sitting there making a pizza with my son and I'm like, he's so cute. You know, he's just such a great hands-on person. I had a friend come to visit me the other day and she's like, your husband just fed the baby. I was like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, that's sexy. That's sexy. It's like paint my house, paint my house, chop my wood. That's sexy. <laughs> Does he clean up after he feeds the kids? No, absolutely not. So sometimes and then the libido goes right down the drain. But so sometimes just kind of, you know, watching him when he's unsuspecting that, you know, and we, we kind of do the same thing as, as, you know, our kids will leave the room and we'll just like passionately kiss each other. And, and that's like our only time Aww. sometimes. But um, yeah. Kissing is sexy. And I think kissing drops off a lot. It drops off. You got to you got to make out. You got to make out. Okay. Now, what feeds your soul? My work. It's so corny, but my work. My work feeds my yeah. soul. I love and I'm so passionate about women's health in midlife. And it's for all the reasons we've already discussed on this podcast. I think having that aha moment myself and always wanting to mm. take care of women And in the traditional senses, helping them give birth, learning about contraception. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized like that midlife was the biggest gap in care. Midlife is where we have nothing. You know, you were talking about how we need to go to other countries. I had a lady message me from Tanzania saying, please help me. I'm 34. The doctors took out my ovaries. I don't know what to do. Mm. And that Mm. fuels me. It fuels my soul. I really, really love being able to educate people. I educate lay women. I educate students. I educate patients. I educate other doctors. And that feeds my soul. Mm. You know, it's funny listening to you about your excitement when you talk about your work. I feel exactly the same way. I mean, I think happiness is finding your life of purpose. If you can find your life of purpose, you will feed your soul for sure. Last part, what is the one thing that you do for your body? If you could choose one thing to keep doing to your body, what would it be? Or for your body? Exercise, exercise, hands down. But I exercise, and I mean this, I actually mean this as a whole body. I don't mean physique. I don't mean weight. I mean it that like exercise movement, it can be anything. I think really, really fuels me. I've always been someone who loved exercise. I get endorphins when I run. I I ran the Boston Marathon in a different life. And exercise is multiple things for me. It resets my mind. It completes the stress cycle. It lets me be freaking alone 
without a yeah. phone sometimes, you know, yeah. I'll make sure if I'm exercising, I will toss the phone if I'm clipped into something so I cannot get it. And yeah. um, I've never exercised and then said, oh, that didn't feel amazing. Yeah, and that it sucks. feels so good. Yeah. And it's just for me. It's not for anybody yeah. else. It's not for my clothes size. It's not for anything other than it is my dialysis. Favorite thing you're watching on TV right now? Last question. Succession. Oh, God, I keep hearing that. I keep hearing that. I've got to watch it. <laughs> we also just finished Ozark. I hear that. Every podcast is like, Ozark, Ozark, Ozark. It's like, oh, my God. Okay, well, I've got to watch that now. Heather, we are out of time. If you want a sexy show to watch, though, it's Peaky Blinders. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah, it's very sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Heather, you're amazing. We're so lucky to have you. Everyone listening, please go to thebodyagency.com. You can read all about Heather, how to contact her, how to have a session with her. She's awesome, amazing. Heather, we're going to have to have you back on really, really soon. And I look forward to conquering the world with you. Oh, let's do it. I'm ready. I am ready and I'm excited. I know all your listeners are as well. Okay. Much love to you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.